Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. Yuma Frigglisters and welcome. Today I have a very special guest and of course all of my guests are special. My guest today is someone who is going to talk about a very important health issue, one that can have a profound impact on many people's finances and one that can often sort of sneak up on people. But before I introduce him, I have some great news to share. My next book, The Joyful Startup Guide, is out. If you've ever thought about boosting your finances through starting a side hustle or even starting a business doing something that you're super passionate about, then this is a book for you. Order now through Booktopia or other bookstores. Details are on my website. Now to my guest. Dr. Kylas Roberts is a psychiatrist with a particular interest in brain health and dementia. He is author of Mind Your Brain, The Essential Australian Guide to Dementia, and he is also creator of an app, BrainScan, which helps users optimize their brain function and reduce their risk of dementia. Kai has worked as a doctor for over 20 years and currently runs a very busy private practice in Brisbane, Australia which includes Your Brain in Mind, a clinic dedicated to the assessment and treatment of cognitive difficulties. So today, as you probably guessed, we're going to talk about dementia. Welcome, Kai. Thanks very much, Serena. Thanks for having me on. As I was talking to you about coming on here as a guest, there was news about former journalist George Nagus being diagnosed with dementia. And it just seems so sad and it seems to have come as quite a shock to many people who remember his very sharp intellect. Yeah, look, I think that's right. And it's a good point to make right up front that however intelligent you might be, you're not necessarily immune from dementia and other sort of brain problems as you get older. But, you know, I guess if there's any sort of silver lining to the whole sort of George Negus thing, it is it is that uh, dementia perhaps is a little bit more in the public sphere now. And I think one of the big issues with it is the kind of the stigma and people not wanting to talk about it. And so the more well-known people that have the condition, mm. uh, the, the more as a population, we sort of hear more about it and it really is something I think that can be helped in some ways and uh, I think people have a very pessimistic attitude about dementia which is understandable but it's important to emphasize the positives in there so that's I guess a silver lining but yeah we're we're increasingly becoming aware of it. Yeah very much so and last year with Jeannie Little as well who's you know now passed there was quite a lot of media around that with her daughter being part of a documentary that really talked mm. about the difficulties that Jeannie faced later in life. Yes, that's right. And I think the other thing is, of course, we're all getting a little older ourselves. So we no. are more familiar with these celebrities <laughs> that themselves are getting older. And, you know, the biggest risk factor for dementia is age. So I don't ever remember hearing about it when I was in my teenage years, but then I wouldn't have been aware of celebrities in that that age bracket, I suppose. So that's Yeah, well, it hits really close to home when you can remember people who were in the public eye and were known for their quick wit or their intellect Mm. and Mm. just seems so sad, really. Mm. Yes, no, it's very true. Mm. I'm one of those people who do forget things. I can be forgetful. I've been known to leave my handbag on buses, frequently forget keys, lock myself out. 
even forget people's names. And my nana grew older. She didn't have dementia, but she certainly was getting a bit dottery and she liked to reminisce about the past and she did forget about events and places. But this isn't dementia, right? When we're talking about dementia, it's something quite different. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, I, I share your pain, Serena. You know, I, <laughs> I'm naturally a fairly forgetful person that my attention gets dragged sideways and I just forget what I'm supposed to be doing. And even recently, like I'm setting up this clinic in the recent months and there's been a lot of stress, a lot of sleeplessness and all that kind of stuff contributes to problem as well. And I just left my glasses in a public toilet, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So, Did you find them so, again? Well, actually, the, the ironically, the, the builder who was kind of helping me set up the clinic said, have you left your glasses in the toilet? So he had to remind me. So because um, I don't need them all the time. So, yeah. So, look, I mean, we are all uh, we all have different brains and they all have their uh, strengths and vulnerabilities, I suppose. There's a sort of, as we get older, we sort of have those strengths and vulnerabilities sort of play out, but then there's the extra things that can happen. And the aging brain does mean that we do have kind of some changes as part of sort of normal process. So we do tend to be, unfortunately, a little more forgetful as we get older. And we know that one of the brain structures, the hippocampus, which is critical for memory encoding, shrinks a bit just as we get older anyway. So that probably accounts for that to a degree. Uh, we're generally slower in our thinking as well. So, you know, like I played a trivia sort of game thing with my son a few months ago and he just blitzed me, you know, because he was so quick <laughs> at it. So uh, they eventually came to me the answers, but, you know, it was a real struggle. So just that kind of slowness of thinking, which then leads to things like tip of the tongue moment, not finding the right words, not as you say, not remembering people's names immediately and so on. So those two things, forgetfulness and slowing of thinking can happen and attentional problems can get a bit worse but they they're not necessarily no they're not sinister and I guess the big difference between them and something like dementia is the, the extent of them so if these things are happening as an exception rather than a rule I think that's not so much of a concern but if they're happening all the time you know that's a problem I think and, and something that you know, people should probably see somebody about the other thing is the extent of the impairment so dementia really part of the definition is that you have to have impairment of your ability to do things day to day so, you, you know, as we get more forgetful and inattentive, we, we compensate to a degree, don't we? You know, we write stuff down and everything like that, and that kind mm. of helps. But if you get to a point where that's just not helping you and you're forgetting big things like important events and appointments or always forgetting your Turning off the stove. Yeah, turning off the stove, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's when I think you need to be more concerned about it. And that you, you mentioned always being forgetful, like both of us are. You know, so if you've always been forgetful and you know more forgetful, that's not necessarily a problem in terms of dementia. It's the change, the deterioration that's the key thing. Mm. And change is a really important one too in our COVID times. And I'm mentioning this because I was talking to a friend this morning who has recently been interstate to visit her parents and because of COVID, she hasn't seen them for quite some time. In her case, her parents live in Queensland. We're in ACT. Borders have been closed for a long time. And she's just now learning that her father is in early stages of dementia and she didn't quite realise that this was the case. With COVID and with so many families not necessarily being in contact, is this sort of hiding some dementia problems, do you think? I think it is. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question. Sometimes, though, if you're in close contact with somebody all the time, you don't notice the change. And actually you don't see somebody for a year or two years and you go back and go, wow, that, that they really changed. They're much more forgetful. And so it's oddly enough, that kind of distance actually can help diagnostically. But yeah, look, I think things are missed sometimes because often if you've got maybe a, a mum and dad who and one of them has dementia, 
say the mum has the dementia, the dad may often compensate for the mum. And, and so like they kind of cope as a couple. But if you were to remove the dad out of the equation, the mum wouldn't cope. And so adult children don't necessarily see the problems unless they're right there and visiting frequently and that kind of thing. So COVID has had, had a big impact. The other thing actually just to comment on, which is a bit of a sad situation, really, is kind of just the impact of isolation in general. Yeah. Like I work in a lot of nursing homes in Brisbane and with the lockdowns, the families haven't been able to visit. And it has this really detrimental effect, whether you have dementia or not. And isolation actually is a, a really bad thing for your brain as well. You know, there's, there's some suggestion that feeling lonely and isolated actually is a risk factor for dementia. So this is a big deal, not an easily solved one. You know, COVID's had a lot of ramifications, I think. Yeah, you're right. I agree that COVID's probably had a lot of long-term health ramifications, not yeah. just in terms of our immune system, but also in terms of our mental health and well-being and also our socialisation. Yeah, well, that's right. And, um, you know, when we look at the things that we think are risk factors for dementia, then so that isolation is, is certainly one of them, but mental health difficulties, so stress, depression, particularly, it's not as though every moment of stress is, you know, some sort of risk factor for dementia. But if you have chronic unrelenting stress that's severe, or if you have kind of recurrent depression and things, and I'm talking about years or decades before dementia traditionally develops, both of those things are have been associated with a higher risk of dementia later on. So I, I guess it's actually this is one of the things that's really important to try and get across to your listeners is that we should be aware as we can that a lot of these processes that eventually result in dementia do start many years beforehand sometimes and so it's really important I think that we try and um, be aware of that and put things in place that can kind of help reduce the risk and so on but yeah the isolation and mental health difficulties with COVID again they don't help the situation. No I can't imagine they wouldn't help at all and what are some of the other risk factors for dementia? So I guess there's three pillars of mental health all, all relevant to dementia so that's exercise and sleep and diet we know actually probably one of the most the best things you can do for your brain really is, is to exercise regularly. That's not just because of its sort of effect on things like sleep and vascular health, you know, your blood supply, but also because exercise actually produces a particular molecule called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like miracle grown you know, fertilizer for your brain, so it promotes brain growth and things like that. That is probably one of those powerful things that, that anybody can do to protect their brain is make sure that they're kind of exercising regularly preferably trying to build in some high intensity if it's medically safe to do so because that kind of extra insult on the body seems to be especially helpful in, in terms of the adaptation that occurs. But we just suggest following the normal guidelines so at least 150 minutes of moderate exercise. That's kind of like where you get out of breath but you can still talk but you can't sing. I think that's the basic definition. And a little bit of resistance training, weight training as well. So exercise is really important to sort of keep on top of. Diet is really profoundly influential as well. And our, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. There's a lot of, you can find support for any diet you want if you look hard enough on the internet. And there's, you know, there are some interesting sort of research studies around things like keto diets, but basically the evidence at the moment suggests that we should be eating a Mediterranean style diet or something that's a variant of that called the MIND diet, the M-I-N-D diet. But diversity, lots of fruit and vegetables, getting your omega-3 fatty acids from sort of fatty fish and things like that, getting sufficient fibre, not having too much saturated fat in the form of kind of dairy and red meat and, and so on. Which is kind of a frugal diet, really, like the Mediterranean diet often comes from fairly frugal traditions. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're right. 
yeah, I mean, I, I think you can easily get away with getting some diversity in your diet frugally. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily kind of an expensive thing. There's some controversy about, you know, organic food and pesticides and brain health and organic food does cost more, I call, of course. Unless you grow it yourself. <laughs> Unless you grow it yourself, yeah, which I must say I've, I've attempted on a few occasions with terrible consequences. I've realised I don't have green thumbs, but I keep trying. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of successful things elsewhere, so. <laughs> sure. Actually, the other thing, so we talked about exercise and diet. The other thing maybe to mention is sleep. And, you know, like sleep is one of my you know, pet topics because I haven't don't feel like I've slept well for 30 years or something. And that, unfortunately, chronically poor sleep. So not, again, you know, not one night poor, of poor sleep, but chronically poor sleep also seems to be a dementia risk thing. And that's probably in part because of inflammation. And this is really sort of elegant process, which we've only really known about for the last sort of 10 years or so, where when you're in the deepest stages of sleep, particularly your brain is washed all these kind of inflammatory molecules that otherwise would just inflame the brain. So if you're not sleeping deeply, they kind of stay there and that inflammation occurs and that's a risk factor. So, you know, that's another thing that is really good to try and prioritise and do your best to make have a good night's sleep. So, you know, this traditional work hard, play hard kind of model isn't actually that good for our mm. brain health. No, 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 definitely not. And then it's a funny thing with sleep, isn't it? It's seen as this kind of badge of honour if you only slept for sort of three or four hours and you still keep on going and, and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, I've but, had a couple um, of cups of coffee, I'm fine. Yeah, well, you know, it queens on health here when they were trying to target tiredness in the system, you know, this was about 12 or 13 years ago, and their solution to dealing with doctors who were overtired was to drink more coffee. But I really don't think that that's one of their solutions. I really don't think that that's kind of, you know, where, where the answer lies. It's much more about trying to get the right work-life balance and doing the things you can to get a, a good night's sleep. Mm. So I want to talk now about prognosis of dementia. So say you've got a parent, you've noticed they're a bit dottery, but a bit beyond dottery. You know, what is the process then for getting them formally diagnosed? Yeah, so I guess the first port of call would be the GP. And so you would need to, to speak, if you're talking about one of your parents, you would need to speak to their GP or ask them to do it or, or go along with them. I, I do think it's quite helpful to, to go along with them because often your feelings about what's going on might be different to their feelings about what's going on. and They think they're fine? They think they're fine, you know. And look, sometimes that's a, a denial thing. Sometimes it's an avoidance thing. Sometimes it's actually a loss of insight. You know, part of the, one of the things that can happen in dementia is you actually lose awareness of, of the problems that exist. And so actually going with somebody, I think, is really important so you can tell them what at least your side of the story and so I always encourage that when I see people so that's the first port of call and I, I think one of the things to look at there is whether there's something else going on that might be causing the memory problems and there's all sorts of stuff that can cause memory issues and particularly again in, in midlife you know where we're kind of we're under a lot of stress or as I said before we're not sleeping well or we're kind of juggling all these different responsibilities now, all of those things can have an impact on memory and other cognitive processes. Menopause can have this temporary effect on cognition and memory and so on. So there can be all these other things that are potentially happening. And then you can have medical conditions, uh, sleep apnea, thyroid changes. You can have medication. Even some of the commonly used medications like statins and antidepressants and things can like, have an effect on your sleep and then on your cognition and so on. So you kind of need to have that evaluation done by your GP. And then I guess once they've ruled out anything treatable, 
from their perspective, if, if it's thought that the, the cognition is a, is a problem, they'll then refer on to a specialist. So that would be either somebody like me, who's an old age psychiatrist, or a neurologist, or a geriatrician. So we're the sort of three specialists that do that. And then when I see somebody and we're sort of working them up, if you like, for a potential dementia diagnosis, we obviously take a history, lots of questions, some examination, and then we do certain investigations. I always try and get a brain scan done, some blood tests done and things. And then we do some actual testing of memory and so on. And uh, most of the time we can come to some conclusion as to whether dementia is there. Not always, I have to say. You know, sometimes people kind of fall into that grey zone where we sort of say, well, we're really not sure. It doesn't look as though it's there yet, but it could happen. And so then we just kind of monitor the process. But I think most of the time, once we've got that initial information back, we, we, can, be, we can put a plan in place at least to, to deal with things. So it's quite an involved process in terms of the, the diagnosis. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a good thing. That's necessary, isn't it? I mean, you don't, like I have seen people who've been diagnosed with dementia that clearly haven't got dementia. And I think that's because they've been misdiagnosed or somebody's been perhaps a little bit hasty or flippant or, you know, somebody's had some sort of operation and they're actually delirious. And then, you know, once the delirium clears, their brain's perfectly okay. <laughs> And then you've got dementia written on your health summary. And so that is then a problem going forward. So I think it's a, it's a good thing that it's involved because it needs to be a comprehensive evaluation. I guess the, the only issue I have with it is, is the time that it takes. Um, you know, like that six-month waiting list in Queensland to get to see public memory clinics and things like that. So I, I think if you can try and get things done a lot more quickly, obviously that's more beneficial. So that, that's the real issue, I think. Yeah, that is quite a long wait time. I can imagine that a lot of people are in denial for a long time before there's a real problem. And as you said, when there's a, a spouse or partner there who is perhaps compensating or helping and they're probably in denial too. So by the time you've got to that point where you're like, yes, okay, there's a problem, then you've got at least a six-month wait on top of that. Yeah, yeah. So the, the time does certainly drag on. And, and I think one of the other big messages is if, if, it, if it does look as though you somebody has dementia that's in your family, it's really good to try and get the diagnosis as early as possible. That, that's my personal feeling. And I have met some people that say, well, look, I, I just don't want to know. And that's really based on the sort of idea that you can't really do anything about it. And I, I guess I'm trying to, and my book talks about this a bit, a bit, to sort of try and change the narrative around that, because there may be limits to what you can do to improve somebody's memory, for instance, but dementia can affect other, you know, people in other ways in terms of their mental health, sleep disturbance, physical health and so on. And there's lots of things that actually can be done to address that. And the earlier you can kind of put those supports in place, the easier the whole situation is. So I think kind of burying your head in the sand and this is just not a wise idea. I actually have found quite a lot of the time that people are quite relieved in a funny kind of way to hear that that's what's going on because it sort of explains what's been happening for them and once you know what the issue is, you can then put a, a plan in place and, and that's, that's helpful for people. What does a plan look like? So a lot of it's kind of, I guess, just a matter of foreshadowing what may happen later on. So it really depends on what the particular issues are at that point in time. So some types of dementia. So and actually, I should probably backtrack a little bit because dementia is a misunderstood term. So really, dementia actually just describes kind of some clinical symptoms and signs. And it's not a diagnosis in itself. It's what we call an umbrella term. And underneath that, there are lots of different types of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, I'm sure you've heard of, things like Lewy body disease, uh, vascular disease, things like that. They can all cause dementia. So depending on what kind of dementia you have will influence the plan and what you can do for it. And for 
Alzheimer's disease, for instance, if you catch it early, there are some medications that can help with memory and so on. They don't change the underlying condition, but they can make life day to day a lot easier. So you might use something like that, or you might address some physical issues that are going on in terms of improving mobility, or or you might address, you know, a lot. unfortunately, there is not unusually anxiety or depression as part of the process at some stage. So you might have a look at that. And then there's the planning about things like finances and legal issues, mm. all of that business, which is a, you know, it's another big deal, a big thing that needs to be kind of taken care of. Yeah, I can imagine, especially things like power of attorney, like if someone's got dementia and you need to make some decisions on their behalf, it could be tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've seen a lot of people who have good going dementia and they haven't got an EPOA, they haven't in fact even got their will sorted out and they're at a point where they are unable to sign the documentation to put that into place and that can cause all kinds of strife. So I think everybody should be sorting this stuff out you know, many decades before dementia may occur, um, just to have it kind of organised. And, you know, if it's written down, it's clear, there's no controversy amongst family members that might otherwise kind of cause issues and things like that. And that's, that's really the way to go, I think. So, yeah, enduring power of attorney is a, a critical thing. There's another thing called the Advanced Health Directive, which is to do with making your health decisions kind of known later down the track again. You have to sign it off with your doctor this time when you're able to make those decisions. But just so just making it all very clear so that somebody that loves you doesn't have to make a sudden decision about whether, you know, in an event, for instance, of a cardiac arrest or something, they won't have to make the decision whether you should be resuscitated, you know, that kind of stuff, which is very stressful. Yeah, exactly. And the person making that decision, you want to know that you're reflecting their wishes and also too that other family members know. In my case, it's a second marriage and my husband does have some heart problems. In fact, not long after we got engaged, he had a heart attack. And thankfully, he's fine. Like we got him to the hospital within that magic 90 minutes and he sustained limited damage and he's fine. But a concern is that if he does have something else and I have to make a decision about his health, do his daughters know what I plan to do? How does his twin sister feel about this? Well, they think that I'm the upstart second wife who's turning things off. There's a lot of things to consider with all of this. Yeah, there are. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I've, I've encountered quite a lot of situations where there's, there's considerable controversy and brothers and sisters are just at each other about this kind of stuff. And I just think if you have it all written down, it's very clear and there's no ambiguity about it. And it just makes the process a lot more streamlined. So, yeah, look, so I think that foreshadowing of potential issues is important. There's sort of the financial stuff, which, of course, is, is relevant to your listeners a lot. And I Unfortunately, of course, dementia can have quite a substantial financial impact on people. I guess particularly if you have so-called younger onset dementia, which is before the age of 65, there's that kind of direct impact because you're possibly working or probably working and you may have to give up work, which has a kind of a massive impact financially, of course. The NDIS is, is very helpful for people that are diagnosed with younger onset dementia. They can provide support. And then you can also access super on a sort of compassionate basis as well. So there are some things that help, but that can have a big impact. But I think even when you have dementia later on, that, that of course, is going to have an impact as well. So there's, there's things like if you're caring for somebody for dementia, can you continue to sustain your own work or do you have to give that yeah. up or reduce your hours and what's the, what's the impact? And there is a, a carer's allowance, which you can get, which is income tested but not asset tested. 
which I think is around about $136 a fortnight. So not a lot, but it all kind of helps. So those kind of things uh, can be of some benefit, but it can it can have a big impact. And then the other thing to think about, I guess, is the the need for more supports as time goes on. So dementia does affect not only cognition, but physical health as well. And most people, we would expect at some stage to have significant problems with fairly basic things like sort of bathing and dressing and certainly cooking and that kind of stuff. So you may need to find somebody either to come into the home where your mum or dad live or potentially to find somewhere for them to live more permanently. And both of those things cost a lot of money, potentially. The government does have a My Aged Care set up or website that people can go to and that sort of gives it lots of information about that kind of stuff. So there is sort of help available financially, but there can be significant financial repercussions. Yeah, I can imagine. You just outlined a number of those those risks and I can imagine that someone who has some fairly serious advanced dementia, you can't just leave them at home because they'll, they'll need to be around someone who's monitoring what they're doing. Yeah, and I, I mean, at the end of the day, that support network is really just comes down to personal preference and how much money you have. I mean, I have some people who are quite well off who aren't really eligible for government funding, but they just essentially pay somebody to be in their house 24-7 to, to look after, you know, the wife or the husband. And so you can have that in place, but it, it obviously becomes quite costly and often gets to a point where it's just not safe for somebody to stay at home as well. So they have to go into like an aged care facility or something along those lines. So that's that's often the case. Mm. So is it preventable? Can you do things to prevent dementia? We talked about the, the three main lifestyle factors. Yeah. Are there other things that people can be doing? Yeah, I, definitely. You know, I think this is def- you know one of the more optimistic things to talk about in the conversation really is, is how much influence I think we can potentially have over our brain health and dementia risk reduction. So there was a a report written for The Lancet, which is a sort of fairly well-known medical journal in 2020, which mentioned that 40% of cases of dementia worldwide could be delayed or prevented. So it's almost half of them. That That's really high. It's massive. Yeah, it's a massive thing. And, and those the evidence from that report was only based on research, which was like the gold standard research. So I suspect the actual percentage is higher, but they've just limited it to the things where there's very strong evidence. So, so almost one in two cases of dementia could be either prevented or pushed back a number of years, which is also a really worthy goal. So we've talked, as you mentioned, about exercise, diet and sleep. The other thing to do is to kind of, I guess, manage your alcohol intake, which we're all a bit guilty of overindulging at times. And I'm increasingly mindful of this because I think if you have too much over a long period of time, it's certainly not good for your brain and can result in dementia, you know, either directly through alcohol or increasing the risk of Alzheimer's and things. So alcohol is a problem. Vascular health, so you, you mentioned Neil and his heart attack, you know, he really needs to make sure that he's looking after all of that side of things very carefully. Because I hope he's listening to this. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah, so things like high blood pressure, managing your weight, cholesterol, glucose, all of those things from midlife at least, that's really important as well. And a lot of that stuff happens silently. And of course, we had the tragic thing with Shane Warne recently. So mm. you can have vascular disease and not realize it. So anybody that hasn't had a sort of heart health check done in their 40s should get it done, I think. Then there's hearing, which is an interesting one. So that Lancet Commission report suggested that the most amount of influence that we have on a population level in terms of reducing dementia risk is to improve hearing. So you don't really appreciate that, but hearing is associated with increased risk of dementia. So 
having that addressed is, is important. Looking after your, your brain in terms of uh, complex mental activity is also really important. So, you know, it's very much a muscle like other muscles in our body. And the more we use it and we put it under just a bit of stress, not too much. So it's kind of really disabling. But a little bit of stress is actually really good for the brain. It kind of helps with neurogenesis, growth of new brain cells and things like that as well. So that's another critical component. And then there's, um, I guess, the isolation thing that we talked about a little bit as well. So making sure that you are socially connected. And that, that really is a kind of a, the, probably the more important thing is the feeling rather than the actual social situation. So you know, I've been to a lot of nursing homes where people are surrounded by others, but they still feel very lonely. So it's about the, how meaningful the, the connection is. And you know, we're all human. This is exactly what we need. We need connection with other people. And when we don't have it, it does have very significant health consequences, including sort of dementia risk and so on as well. Mm. And so one final question, do you have a frugalista tip to share? Now, I know your wife is a big frugalista. In fact, I had her on the podcast earlier, also a doctor, Dr. Jenny Roberts. So I know you come from the frugalista family, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share. Well, I guess my tips would be one to try and as best you can emulate a lifestyle that maybe we had 100 years ago. So you know, like try and reduce processed foods, try and keep physically active, try and have good circadian rhythms and that kind of thing. And then coming back to what Neil said, skiing, well, if you enjoy skiing, that's really important, isn't it? I mean, it's all about <laughs> trying to do things that you enjoy, getting satisfaction out of life, giving yourself a break, trying to get that work-life balance and things organised as well. So I guess, I guess those would be my, my tips. In regard, regard to dementia, really, it's just a matter of being alert but not alarmed, you know, so look after your brain if you can. If it looks as though you or a loved one has dementia, please go and get it checked. And there are lots of supports out there that, that may be beneficial. Well, thank you so much for sharing. How can people find you? You've got your Brain Scan app as well that's available on iPhones. Yes, so iPhone in Australia. So they can just type in Brain Scan and it basically gives an evaluation of people's brain health and all their risk factors, some of which we've talked about. And then you can get recommendations about how to sort of address these risk factors as well. So uh, that's been out for a few months. So um, yeah, I'd love for people to kind of have a look at that and see what they, they make of it and to give some feedback. It's version one. So, you know, we hopefully refine that with time so they can check that out. They can find my book, which is in you know all good bookstores and online, Booktopia, Amazon and things like that. So that's Mind Your Brain. And then I have a website for my clinic, which also has links to some of these other things. And that's yourbraininmind.com.au. And that, that has a lot of info on there about dementia generally, but about the clinic and the book and the app and things. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for being my guest. I really appreciate it. And for all my listeners, if you've enjoyed this and other discussions, please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. Thanks very much, Serena. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Every
Stop.